Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top shelf equipment and designers for broadcast concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know this is your most important event. It is their goal to make sure you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to another episode of LD at Large podcast. My name is Chris Los. I am the designer relations developer at Ayrton Lighting, as well as columnist for PLSN Magazine, LD at Large. I hope you guys are all reading and listening and enjoying. I'm very excited today because I'm uh, using this time in self-isolation to reach out to people that I've been following online and, I, and I'm aware of them, but we've never had time to really sit together and spend a full hour. So today I'm very excited to have a very special guest. His name is Jim Tetlow. He is the president and principal consultant at Nautilus Entertainment Design. Thank you so much for making an hour to sit and uh, hang out with me, Jim. Thank you, Chris. Uh, you guys can't see, but he has a very clever Zoom background. It looks like he's in the middle of a, of a huge arena with chairs and uh, a beautiful video wall full of lighting. It looks like it's a, it actually, looks like exactly where I would love to be right now. <laughs> it's actually a theater we designed for Holland America, and it's under 1,000 seats, but it has a 270-degree uh, video wall that wraps around the audience for a, a real immersive experience. Wow. That's on a cruise ship. Yes. Man, if anybody uh, has been on a Holland America cruise, cruise ship recently, you, you can maybe have an idea of what I'm looking at here, but it is a, it's spectacular. So the reason I wanted to reach out to you is because my audience is primarily rock and roll lighting pirates. And uh, they kind of, I've had a couple people reach out to me like, hey man, so we already know a lot of these people. Can you reach out of our industry and kind of get into the corporate and the architectural world? So I, I uh, kind of put it, put that into the, the infamous Google bar and you pop up pretty quick, Jim. You're fairly well established yeah. in both of those realms. So I thought maybe you would be a great person to ask some questions to. So I don't know if uh, you're working on your search engine optimization or not, but uh, maybe it's just your long, your laundry list of, uh, of, of gigs or what, but you're, you're right up there at the top. Well, thank you. So I wanted to ask you, like, how did you get into the corporate side of lighting? Was it, did you come up through theater? Did you come up through... Just did you just fall into it? Yeah, well, uh, I graduated from Carnegie Mellon with a degree in technical theater. They, they didn't have a uh, lighting design track uh, back in the 70s. Uh, so I, I knew I wanted to be a lighting designer, but you had to be uh, in, in the uh, technical production uh, track. Coming out of that program, I knew I didn't want to work in theater. I wanted <laughs> to work in television because I was seduced by the technology. And in the 1970s, making good television pictures was a lot harder to do because of the quality of the, the cameras. Uh, so I bounced around for a while and floundered like a lot of people coming out of school and had trouble getting traction. Uh, but in 1981, when cable television took off, I was hired by a company called Emiro Fiorentino Associates in New York. Uh, I'd been working for them freelance in LA and uh, they, they had a show in New York. They were looking for somebody to cover it. So uh, the, I got the call. I went and I did that show while I was there. I got booked on an MTV concert. This is the fall of the MTV one on the air. Uh, in between those, uh, I did a talk show. Um, CNN went on the air, and, and I lit their news set down at the World Trade Center. And, and finally, they, they came to me and said, look, we, uh, we're paying you too much freelance. We want you to come on staff. So... I spent 10 years with them in New York and then a year back in L.A. And it was primarily television, but the office uh, also uh, did facility design, architectural lighting, uh, and corporate shows. Uh, and so with them, I did my first car show in 1981. Uh, and then uh, the following year, a very large Anheuser-Busch show. Uh, and, and so 
that was really how I got introduced into the corporate shows. But the real opportunity in the 1980s to get into the shows, in the corporate side of shows, was that video came into its own. Up until that time, uh, all of the content was slide projectors. There'd be massive arrays of, of ectographic slide projectors uh, that were all synchronized. Uh, and there was no video magnification of the executives. Once video projectors uh, became bright enough and a high enough quality, uh, there was an opportunity because the guys that were lighting the corporate shows in those days didn't know how to light for the camera. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was a real opportunity uh, to go in there and, and light for the camera uh, and, and light for the projector uh, and also with a theatrical background, uh, it, it all fit. So you, you didn't see that as, a, as an obstacle. You saw video and uh, the content as a new part of your realm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I would imagine yeah. a lot of people see, would have seen that as, a, as, a, as an obstacle, something that was insurmountable, but you weren't afraid. You just kept going, like, well, clearly I need to integrate that. Yeah, yeah but, but in the early days, the only thing uh, video was used for was image magnification. It hadn't been, mm -hmm. it, it wasn't used for content until let's say 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Uh, you know, yeah, in the 80s. so was, recently. Yeah, yeah, but in the 80s, I mean, the first thing we're doing is, is uh, image mag. Right. You were able to start learning more about video and you brought that into your, into your repertoire then. I, I had done an internship while I was in college with a television production company in Pittsburgh. And it's another place where I, I learned a tremendous amount. I, I learned about uh, uh, switchers, uh, about cameras, uh, about audio for television. So, and, and like I said, I, I was really seduced by the technology, and, and I loved the video technology back then. I still love it, but, but you know, so it, 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 was a, it, was a, it was a great <laughs> thing that I wanted to learn. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a familiar story. I think that happens on our side, too. It's just... I get to push a button and make things happen across the side of, a, of a, an arena. That's something I want to do. I want to push buttons and make things happen really far away too. I think we're all seduced by the technology in one way or another. So kind of fill me in on how that progression happened, that you decided that you were going to start integrating everything and how, how you felt the need to kind of learn a little bit about everything. Well, it, it, it all goes back to, having to be a technical production major. Uh, even though I wanted to do lighting, I had to be a stage carpenter. I had to be a flyman. Uh, I had to do audio. Uh, I, I had to sew costumes. I was exposed to all these, these other disciplines early on. And, and I'm just naturally curious about, about the technology. So I would imagine you had to constantly reinvent yourself then. You had to constantly be willing to learn new things, even though you were starting to become a master of one, you decided to keep your finger in a little bit of everything. Yeah. And, and it's, it's not always a, you know, a conscious decision to reinvent yourself. Sometimes it just happens or sometimes you're forced into it uh, or sometimes you're looking for professional growth. What was one of the times that you were forced into doing something outside your wheelhouse? Um, well, let me think about that. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I, uh, current crisis excluded. <laughs> right, right. Uh, well, I, I would say those early days with Fiorentino Associates, uh, the, the young lighting designers, uh, which included Marilyn Lowy, who, who uh, had, had uh, been a contemporary of mine at, at Carnegie Mellon, and Alan Edelman, uh, and, and a couple, uh, you know, the Randy Norris and some others, um, we were, we, they kept throwing us into the deep end of the pool. And if we managed to swim out, then they tie weights around us and throw us <laughs> back into the, into the deep end of the pool to see if we could come out. We, we were constantly thrown into projects that were probably beyond what we were in our comfort zone, but it really forced us to learn all these things. Um, and I was really fortunate that I learned television lighting from the guys that invented it in the late forties and fifties. But when I look back now, the fact that, you know, they, they say, Oh, go, uh, you know, go over to, uh, go do the CNN set down in world trade center. I'd, I'd never done a news set, uh, you know, in the round like that. 
uh, or I go to the West Side Pier and do this MTV concert. You know, so <laughs> we were constantly uh, uh, put in uh, into uh, situations that were probably beyond our our, uh, cap our our known capabilities at that time. That was a great analogy with the weights. Uh, it's kind of like uh, Jim. We see that you can farm. Can you also be a chef? Uh, yeah, right. uh, we see right. that you're a chef. Can you also be a waiter? Uh, yeah, I, if that's what you need me to do. It's, and you just keep assuming new roles because that's where, that's where the, the opportunities are for you, I would exactly. imagine. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so let's say times like 2008 when the depression happened, did you have to completely shift your whole model or did you already have enough skills and did you already have your fingers in enough uh, different skill sets that you were able to adapt? Uh, well, of, of course, all of the live production, most live production was canceled. Uh, right. We were probably doing, uh, within our office, 40 or 50 corporate shows a year, and it went down to like 12. Right. But the theater consulting, the arc, uh, we, we weren't in, into architectural lighting too much at that point, but the theater consulting, the AV system design, the cruise ship work, all that continued on. Uh, and, and that carried us on. And then we had a very strange time at the end of 2010 where no new ships had been ordered, shows had picked up, but the existing contracts had run out. All those ships had delivered. And then finally, at the very end of 2010, they ordered another slew of ships uh, that we're still working on. That is one of the, the huge assets of architectural and cruise ship stuff is that the timeline is so long, I Expanded. would imagine. Exactly. Yeah, 18 yeah. months to two years. There's always at least a, a carrot dangling or a light at the end of the tunnel there when you have such a long expanded uh, process there as opposed to the corporate events, which, I mean, sometimes those get thrown up in just a few days, and tossed in the frying pan. Yeah, it's a one-off. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah you, if, there's if we're no lucky, there, guarantee. There might, yeah, I, if we're lucky, there might be a couple successive waves of, would you give you another week on, on site? But uh, typically, uh, it's just a one-off. Is that why you have an entire team on your side? So that you can keep kicking over stones in different parts of the industry? Yeah, you know, I, this wasn't a conscious decision to build a company with like 22 employees. That was that, that, <laughs> it just happened. Yeah, I, I've set up kind of, I'm an accidental entrepreneur. This, I, I, didn't, I didn't have this plan or this goal to have this. It's just the clients would come and say, oh, can you do this? And can you do this? Can you do that? And, and we expanded our, our staff and our resources to be able to meet the client's needs. Do you think that that was part of your inability to say no? Or was it just <laughs> your, your willingness to say yes? Uh, it, it, it's a combination of both. <laughs> uh, uh, Tom Mendenhall, uh, who, who uh, is the owner of FM Productions in, in San Francisco, had, had this routine where he'd, he'd say if a client would call him frequently with something he really didn't want to do, he would say, okay, yes. Because he couldn't say no. And, and I, that's kind of, that's kind of the way I, I am too. Does that make you a, a people pleaser or an entrepreneur? in that regard i'm not sure i'm not sure me neither i the the, the line is so fuzzy i don't think it becomes a problem until you say yes to two things simultaneously and you have to let one down and that's a recurring nightmare of mine uh it, it, it hasn't happened but it's a recurring nightmare that i have that that i i double book myself or triple book myself and and i don't know what to do about it that's a very real concern for a lot of us because we love saying yes because we we think there's a paycheck at the other end of that yes but sometimes we just get too too eager i would imagine but it sounds like you that hasn't happened to you yet it sounds like you've been able to come through on all of your yeses somehow miraculously yes congratulations thank you uh that must be a very exciting i would imagine that each step along the way you realized you had to be a little bit more refined or a little more corporatized, I would say, to, to fulfill your, your lofty expectations? I, I don't know about that. Um, okay. Uh, I, 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 
Yeah, you, you're, you're probably right. As we've as we've added employees, we we, we have to put uh, programs in place and uh, uh, and standards and uh, uh, yeah, yeah. But it, it's learning. It, you know, both my wife and I have fine arts degrees. What are we doing running a business? <laughs> Yeah, a lot of people fall down that. I, I consider myself, I never thought I would have an Inc. Uh, I never thought I would have an LLC, a sole proprietorship. But as my jobs got bigger and the, the paychecks got bigger, there were more requirements. And one of the things my dad always says to me is you're never ready to start a business. You're never ready to get married and you're never ready to buy a house, but you're going to do all three of them. Right, right. So I would imagine it was just kind of a, a carrot on a stick for you too. And next thing you know, you kind of look back and you're like, oh my God, I've come so far. Yeah, I, 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 I guess so. It, it was taking advantage of opportunities that presented themselves to me. Um, in 19, I, I moved back to the West Coast in 1990, still with Fiorentino Associates. Uh, but then I went freelance uh, I, it, later, like November of 1990. So we're now 30 years in business. And then in 91, I had the opportunity to light a uh, Las Vegas show at the Stardust, Enter the Night, uh, which was probably the last big tits and feathers extravaganza sort of show. And I thought that I was going to be doing a lot of lot more Vegas shows after that because it was, it was, it was very well received, but that was just on the cusp of, of when Cirque du Soleil entered Vegas. So I, mm -hmm. I ended up doing a couple small things, uh, but there weren't any more of those uh, review type shows. They're all Cirque du Soleil shows after that. But what happened was that some executives from Carnival Corporation had come to see the show, liked the lighting, and called me the next morning. And they couldn't Google me, right? This is 1991. Right. So, so they got the LA phone book or the, you know, they, they called 411 or whatever. The phone <laughs> rings, I pick it up and, and this guy said, hi, I'm so-and-so, I'm with Carnival Cruise Lines and we just saw your show and we want to talk to you about doing shows on ships. So I flew to Miami uh, we hit it off. We did a three-day cruise. I saw some of their shows. They really did need help, and we hit it off. <laughs> so um, uh, I ended up uh, later that year. I did uh, the inaugural show on on a new ship of theirs. Uh, that went very well. Uh, they uh, contracted me for the next one and the next one. And then uh, in '94, they said we have a whole new series of ships. As you know, we've never had the right gear from the shipyard. Can you help us? come up with the right lighting gear. And I said, you mean consult? And they said, yeah, that's it. So that's how I got into that side of the business. The other thing that happened with Enter the Night at the Stardust is some people from Branson, Missouri came and saw it and they called me up out of the blue. And they, they said, well, uh, you know, we love the show. We'd like to talk to you about coming to Branson, Missouri to do, uh, to light our show. And I said, Branson, Branson, I'd never heard of it. So flew to Branson, met the uh, producer, uh, and this was the Shoji Tabuchi show, uh, and uh, had a 20-year fantastic relationship with them lighting their shows. So you don't know where these opportunities are going to come from. I didn't know about cruise ships. I didn't know about Branson, but doing a Vegas show brought me into both of those. You didn't market yourself as a cruise ship lighting person, a consultant, lighting designer. It just fell into your lap, per se? Yeah, yeah. these were in the early days of, 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 of cruise ship shows. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, since then, we have consulted on more than 55 new ships. So this was, you know, this was a long time ago. Um, and I really only did the shows on ships for a few years. Uh, I rapidly got into the consulting side of it. The, the way I, I uh, explain that is in those days, the budgets have gotten a lot bigger now, but in those days, corporate shipbuilding has $500 million to build the ship and entertainment department has about a buck 98 to do the show. 
Yeah. And, and, and so I know now that, you know, they got more money and the designers are getting uh, paid better. Uh, but in those days, the, the money was much more in the consulting business, the consulting side of it. What prevented you from saying, oh, thank you for that offer, but I'm really looking to get more Vegas residencies because that's what I believe to be my new upcoming bread and butter. Was it, was it your instincts or was it, it the, it, the it, money? It was, it, yeah, well, at the beginning, the, the fees for the cruise ship shows were really very low. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, but it was, I sensed there was a lot of possibility. Okay. I, I, it, that's really, it was my gut instinct that there could be some real possibilities here. Uh, so let's get into this. Let's learn this side of the business. Let's get in with this team, uh, which I really like. They, they, they put together a good team. I really like the uh, entertainment people at Carnival. Uh, they had great uh, choreographers and directors, and uh, uh, it, it was a lot of fun. So at this point in your career, did you have anybody on your team that was like uh, kind of double you know, second guessing you going like, Jim, we kind of have this Vegas thing holding on here and we got this Branson thing. Cruise ships is kind of risky. Are you sure that's what the route you want to take? No, I, I, I well, at that point, 1991, 92, we didn't have any employees, just my wife and myself. Okay. And, 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 and she was completely supportive about, hey, let's see where this goes. <laughs> oh, you know, let's, let's see where, yeah, let's see, let's see what happens here. But, but here's another example of opportunity uh, is that, uh, and, and, and having a diversified interest in different areas is on that uh, first large cruise ship uh, where they asked me to consult. All I originally was doing was the lighting, theatrical lighting for the main theater and a secondary lounge. I go to a meeting with the architect and there's an AV consultant, but it's clear there's nobody that knows anything about rigging, uh, stage mechanics, uh, special effects. So I walk out of the meeting with that in my scope. Okay. Uh, and, And so we got through that whole project uh, and I'd really uh, hit it off and es- establish a great relationship with the vice president of corporate shipbuilding. And at the end of that project, then they asked me to take on all the AV consulting too. So, so it would have been, uh, oh, and, and also uh, I, I ended up doing the theater consulting with the architect uh, because the, uh, the lighting locations didn't work. And, and so I proposed a different ceiling lay- layout for him and he was completely receptive to it. And we, we established a great rapport and, and, and relationship. So, so then I'm doing the theater consulting, the theatrical lighting, uh, uh, audio, uh, the video systems, uh, and, and whatever. And, and when they asked me to do the AV, I said, look, I know enough to be dangerous, but this isn't what I do. I'm going to have to hire somebody to work with me to do this. And they said, that's fine as long as you manage them and, and you're responsible. And I said, done. So that's when I started hiring people. It sounds like in this case, you were the one strapping the weights to your own feet there, trying to see <laughs> how many. Ahead. Right. Yeah, you're like, let's see. Let's see how many weights I can swim with. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, you touched on a huge topic, though. That, that, that transparency is what can often save your ass. You can be something like, hey, I know enough about this to be dangerous. I'm going to give you my best shot, and you're completely reliant on your trust in my abilities. But if you if we all go in it with managed expectations, then if you if you come out like a like a champion, then you you you've proven yourself. But if you go in trying to say like I can do all of that, no problem, no matter what, and you, you're found to be uh, over promising, yeah. Right. yeah, right. If you right. if you over promise, you you can uh, you can bite yourself in the ass there. Under promise, over deliver. That's very, uh, those are very wise words for sure. Uh, do you feel that that open front, uh, upfront honesty has been kind of one of your uh, trademarks? Yeah, I do. I do. Uh, That's awesome. I, 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 it, there's nothing to be gained by pretending you can do something you can't. Uh, I, I, I will say there, there have been times where Somebody's come to us and asked to do something. I said, well, we haven't done that before, but I, I, I feel confident we can figure out how to do that. Cool. I think that's a, 
I think that that is as transparent as honest as you can be sometimes say hey let's let's try it yeah another thing you touched on that I find I uh, I have as a luxury as well is I have a very supportive wife who understands the importance of what we do do you feel that's been a huge benefit to your whole career oh yeah and 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 she's handled the financial side of our business all the way through this really yeah yeah is she an employee or just a partner or we we, we are co-owners of of the company and we're both employees of the company so there's always a talk of business around the dinner table and hello talk (laughs) <laughs> what are our receivables <laughs> <laughs> talk receivables to me baby <laughs> yeah I, I and i don't want to call anybody out but i've heard so many stories of people being out on the road and doing things and they their their parents and their their spouses and their significant others they don't understand what we do it must be very helpful for you to have a wife with a theatrical degree and a fair amount of knowledge of what it is that you're striving for. Well, no, she actually, she doesn't have a, a theatrical degree. She's got a fight. She's got an art history degree uh-huh. and, and a master's in museum studies, but wow. she was working as a unit manager and cost accountant at Fiorentino associates in the 1980s, which is where we met. Okay. So she was already doing finances for a, a similar type of, uh, uh, technical design company. And that, that works out well for you. Uh, my wife and I, we love each other very much, but working together is not something that we're good at. So we kind of avoid that. It sounds like you don't have that, uh, that hurdle. It's not always easy, but, (laughs) (laughs) but it's, it's, you know, it's worked for 30 years. So Congratulations on uh, the business and the relationship side of that one. That's uh, Thank you. quite the balance being that you're walking, Jim. <laughs> yes. uh, do you find that she pushes you or do you feel that she just kind of supports you? I, I don't think she pushes me in any direction, but she, she definitely supports. It kind of sounds like you don't need any, need too much pushing. It sounds like you just kind of follow your instincts uh, all on your own. I'd, I'd say that's, uh, that's accurate. When it comes to the Vegas shows, it sounds like you were very excited about getting more Vegas shows. Is that because that's something that you wanted for yourself to be part of your, your job? Or was it just something that you saw future in? I assumed there was a future in it. Mm-hmm. But, but Cirque du Soleil was a major disruptor in uh, in the 1990s in, in Las Vegas. Um, I, and so uh, the sum of what I was able to do in Vegas after uh, uh, Enter the Night uh, was uh, a show at, uh, a small show at the Dunes uh, and, and then relighting uh, a lot of scenes uh, at the, uh, the uh, whatever French show is the Tropicana and the, the show at the MGM. Uh, you, you know, moving lights were just coming into their own at that point. Uh, high end had a very aggressive sales uh, salesman in Vegas, and and so they were buying uh, in, in telebeans and and things like that. So I'd go in and relight scenes with, with some moving lights, uh, and and but it, the the whole show business aspect was disrupted by by Cirque du Soleil, which yeah. of course had all their own team. Yeah, they took over in a in a pretty big way for yeah. for quite a number of years. Uh, I'm not sure if their reign is over quite yet, but uh, it's still, they've had one of the longer runs for sure. Uh, yes. What's interesting is what you're talking about is what used to be a residency. and uh, that Those long running shows that, you know, they, they could stay there for so long because Vegas had the constant rotation of people. So I don't know if what, what we call a residency now is, is actually a reinvention or if it's just a rehashing of what's already been done so many times before. Yeah. I, I think enter the night ran 11, 12, 13 years, something like that. I, I, I can't remember. Yeah, that's impressive. Did saying yes, please ever bite you in the butt. Did you ever uh, bite off more than you could chew? Not yet. I don't think. Wow. Everybody has clunkers, right? Everybody has a show that 
isn't as good as all your other work. I mean, this happens time to time mm-hmm. for everybody, but I, I can't yeah. attribute it to biting off more, more than I could chew. That's a, that's a huge statement. Congratulations. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, one of the, one of the things that, that, that was on the, the borderline was the 25th anniversary of the founding of Singapore. And it was an arena show that we did in 1990 with, with first generation automated searchlights. And we were, uh, frankly, uh, overwhelmed by the weather, torrential rains. And this is produced by the Ministry of Defense in Singapore. And they were going to provide all the labor to carry the searchlights up to the back of the stadium. They didn't want to pay for a crane to be outside the stadium, lift them up and just drop them, you know, in the back row of seats where we'd build platforms. So they had, our crew was a platoon of soldiers that then had to carry all these searchlights up. And it took like a week longer to get them up in position than we expected it to. Big problems with rain and the contract for the generators did not include any operators. So we program all night and at sunrise, seven in the morning when we stopped programming, uh, while the guys are packing up the desk, I would walk around the perimeter of the uh, stadium shutting down the generators. And that went fine until I accidentally shut down the generators that the laser guys were still using, which shut down their pumps. And after that, I never had to go back and shut down the rest of the generators. I got fired <laughs> from that position. But this was a hairy edge uh, sort of job, and, and we pulled it off. But that was one of those times. That, and, and I didn't feel it was I bit off too much. I, it's just none of us doing the whole production understood really what we were getting into. Oh, that's a great example. It's, I find myself falling into that same trap. Well, I'm here and I know how to turn off generators, so I might as well just assume that. But all too often, it's the uh, one time it's a favor, next time it's a, it's a gig sort of thing. Right, right. Oh, Jim, he's the, that's the generator turner offer guy. He, he does it every night. Yeah. <laughs> like, right. Well, I just volunteered to do it because the rest of the guys were busy with other stuff. So I said, hey, I'll do it, you know? <laughs> yeah. And then next thing you know, you're like, well, I don't know. Jim, Jim was supposed to turn off the generators and he didn't do it. <laughs> right. Right. So having your fingers in so many different aspects, where do you find the inspiration to keep reinventing new looks and shows. I mean, you have to have a wealth of inspiration now. Well, and there's, there's so much more we can do now with with video content. It's it's interesting how scenery uh, is now become a support for video, Mm -hmm. whether it be a screen or or an led display or, or something like that. So the, I'm finding less satisfaction with, or I don't want to say satisfaction, I'm finding less opportunity with theatrical lighting within corporate shows uh, because the content is is providing that. And in so many uh, uh, circumstances, the content is overwhelming the lighting. It's so bright. So the, the opportunities seem to be shifting from, from lighting to video. The, uh, we did a show, uh, beyond, beyond the video, we, we, we did a show for uh, Intel at CES a couple years ago, where we had several hundred of the Tate uh, micro winches with uh, cylindrical LED fixtures suspended from them. Mm-hmm. And, and it was an incredible opportunity to, to program the color, the motion, the waves of motion uh, of all these cylindrical lighting fixtures on on these these micro winches, I, and and so I really I, I mean that really felt great. So we were we were using those in conjunction with an LED floor, an LED wall, uh, but the real opportunity for lighting was in uh, the atmospheric effects with these uh, micro winches and uh, cylindrical lighting fixtures. Yeah, I can't imagine that's anything that anybody ever foresaw that lighting was just going to be the secondary to the video. Cause it used to just be, if you wanted a spectacular set, you had to build a set. 
Yeah. Now you just put up a video wall and you have infinite sets. Right. Uh, exactly. I, I, I wouldn't imagine that you or I ever foresaw that that was going to be, that was going to become our gig. That was, that was a set designer position. And now that's, that's us. Uh, in some cases, uh, and, and, and a lot of the uh, uh, projects that I, I'm working with, there's already a large video team in place mm -hmm. and they have content creators that they're working with for that. All right. So where do you end up finding your inspiration? What do you do outside of uh, cruise ships and corporate and architectural lighting? For, for leisure? Yeah. I, I, I've always been a photographer. I still work in a traditional wet dark room. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I, I use 19th century uh, techniques, uh, platinum, palladium, cyanotypes. Uh, and uh, it's, it's uh, where I find my, my relaxation and my creativity. Uh, I, it's, it's, a, it's a great creative outlook. That is a lost uh, art. Yeah. Uh, that, is, that sounds very relaxing. I would imagine you could spend hours at a time in a dark room and getting your hands yeah. wet. And, it, 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 it's, and it's, it's high touch. Uh, right. I went through a period of, of printing photographs with, with a digital printer and it was a hard work to get that first print. But then if you want another one, you just push print and the second one comes out. <laughs> and I felt like I'd lost touch with the craft of, yeah. of, of darkroom work. So uh, now any of my prints, I, I uh, typically the platinum palladium, uh, I, I buy a special watercolor paper, I mix the chemistry, I coat the paper by hand, uh, I expose it with a negative, I handle it through the chemicals, uh, wash it and dry it, and it's a handcrafted print. And, and, and I get great satisfaction from that. Is that your, uh, for lack of a better term, your mindfulness, your, your meditation practice there? You just- uh... yeah, I, yeah, yeah, because you have to be mindful when you're doing this or you're gonna screw it up. Yeah, you can't, multi, you can't multitask. You can't be on the phone and, you know, and a half dozen other things or you're gonna miss something. Yeah, I would imagine you'd have to still lock the door and turn on the red light and make sure like, hey, do not come in here. Jim, Jim's at work and don't come in here. Yeah, well, I, with this specific process, it, it doesn't have to be as dark. It has to be moderately dark, but you can't have any okay. UV. It, it, uh, the chemistry is UV sensitive, so uh, you, you don't want to have any UV lighting, but it doesn't have to be dark as traditional silver printing. Got it. So what's your, what's your normal uh, target for the, your photography? Is it uh, people? People, things, Does it, you're all over the place? Never people. You should know by now I hate people. <laughs> uh, it's, it's architecture. I, I'm real big on architecture. Uh, <laughs> landscapes, nature. Uh, I'm up here in the cabin in Idlewild. We've got beautiful trails. We've got mountains. Uh, so uh, a combination of scenic, uh, uh, some street photography, but I, I really enjoy abstracts uh, and architecture. It's good to know that Jim doesn't shoot people. He, uh, <laughs> right. Buildings, nature, he'll shoot all those, but he won't shoot people. So uh, one of the things that I often run into when I try and diversify is I don't do it for the right reasons. So in, in rock and roll, when I'm out on tour, I want to be doing a house gig. Or if I'm doing a time-coded show, I want to be on a punted show. But if I'm on a punted show, I want to be on a time-coded show. Do you run into the same thing? Do you want to, do you just get tired of doing the same things over and over? And that's why you bounce from thing to thing? Yeah. I, if uh, all I did was one aspect of lighting, I think I'd go crazy. Um, uh, and, and so it's the variety that I really like. Doing a large corporate show doing uh, an exhibit uh, for General Motors, uh, going to a small corporate show, uh, going to the presidential debates. Um, you know, it, it, these are all different size, scale types and require different skill sets. Mm -hmm. That was never more apparent to me than the last 70 days. Uh, being at home, going to the same chair, the same computer. Uh, I didn't 
fully embrace how people like you and I get into this injury because we need to be in a new room with new people doing different projects constantly. Uh, is it the, the bombardment of, uh, of intrigue and the, just the constant stimulation that keeps, uh, keeps you going back for more? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're, we're all stimulation junkies, you know, in, in this business. Yeah. Uh, especially when it comes to blinky lights and content. I mean, there are the, the opportunities are endless for us to get those, that stimulation that, that we're always uh, seeking for. Yeah. I, and, and also I, I find that I'm uh, more creative and, and more stimulated if I'm working on multiple projects at the same time rather than just focusing on one. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's been well, well documented that some of the, the best designers are working on the next gig halfway through the current always. gig. Always. Yeah. I would imagine that's part of the reason you have such a, a large team uh, with you is so that you can be moving forward to the next project while they're still sorting out the current project. Actually, we're all moving forward to the next project while still <laughs> sorting out the current project. <laughs> That's right. one of the things that we, we can never really make it too public that we're working on the next people's project on the, on the other people's clock, but it's, it's inevitable. Right. If they come to you, like, what are you working on? Like, I'm working on the next project. Yeah. Well, when are you going to work on my project? Well, I was working on your project for the last project. Exactly, yeah. How do you think your project got done? Exactly. How do you think <laughs> I got here? <laughs> And it, it, a lot of people don't like seeing it, but it's the optics of it saying, well, no, that's, you, you got the same benefit. So this is how, this is how it works. Yeah. You know? So what is the, the next project for you? Are you seeing lights at the end of the tunnel or has anything slowed down for you? Oh, well, like with everybody else, every live event for the, you know, the next year has been canceled. Yeah. Uh, uh, the, the one event, uh, the four events that haven't been canceled are the presidential debates. And I was uh, off on surveys two weeks ago for two of those locations. Um, uh, so th th those are, those are definitely on, they say, uh, going to happen. Uh, we don't know if it will be a, a full audience, uh, a sparse audience or no audience, but uh, we're, we're going on location to do the debates. Um, I, I'm hearing that uh, there's a possibility of doing a, uh, uh, automobile dealer show from their headquarters and streaming it. So uh, maybe going on a survey in a couple of weeks for that. Uh, so beginning to see, uh, you know, some, some possibilities, but cool. the majority of all live event production uh, has been canceled. Yeah. Uh, we're seeing the same thing. And uh, I don't want to, I don't want to take you too much down the speculation road, but I would imagine that you're going to have to reinvent yourself again because we really have no idea what the future of live events is going to look like. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'm struggling to, to, to think about, is there an alternative performance venue that we should be thinking about designing uh, with, with social distancing? Uh, and, and I, and I haven't quite landed on what, what that is yet, but I, I've just been trying to future think, uh, about what, 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 you know, what are the possibilities? Yeah, I was having that, uh, a very similar conversation, uh, two, three days ago where some of the major shifts that we would have to make wouldn't be temporary. You know, uh, if you're going to put up glass walls for audience members, if you're going to do new waiting rooms to get into venues, I mean, those aren't cheap changes. I mean, those are permanent structural changes those right. aren't things that we come back from if we start doing those major changes yeah so i would the, imagine and, that's something you have to be uh you have to give it a lot of forethought yeah the the actual seating separation is the easy part you know you're going down to a third of your capacity in your venue the harder part is the ingress and the egress and and access on uh, during intermissions to the restrooms or any concessions. Of course, the concessions will all be closed. Um, th those are the challenges. I saw a, a magazine article 
online the other day, and I'm trying to remember, uh, was it in Harper's or uh, Vanity Fair, about a theater in Germany, they'd taken out two thirds of the chairs. And so they'd have a pair of theater seats and, and then nothing, and then a single seat and then nothing, and, and then another pair of seats. And uh, I said, okay, well, that's great, but how are they managing the audience? And sure enough, your ticket said, uh, come at um, 7.45 for some people, 7.50 for the others, 7.55 for somebody else. So they bring them in in small groups and seat them. No intermission, they shorten the shows. So you, you stay in your seats, you see the show, and then they had a way of pulling them back out. Now, I don't think that's the future. That is just using existing theaters. Right. I think we need to think beyond that uh, in, in the larger venues, more spacing. Um, uh, let, let, let's say if you have an arena, uh, uh, you, you can only enter uh, in the section where your seats are uh, and, and it's sparsely seated, something like that. I'm, I'm still struggling with it. So one of the things I'm really interested in seeing is how live events bring the audience back in. So what you were just talking about was were clearly a temporary solution, but some of the bigger ones, that were, some of the bigger ideas that we're going to have to have are going to be, you know, more video audiences. And that's something that is going to require some really big group think to make it happen. I would imagine that you guys have kind of brainstorming that already. Yeah, to some extent, but we, we, we haven't really found what, what the solution to it is. Uh, I, I mean, obviously, it, it's, it's more people in the larger venue, so you, so you can do social distancing. But um, I, I was on a, a call the other day, and, and, and somebody said, well, you know, there's a lot of malls that are out of business, are going to go out of business. Uh, maybe those malls could be repurposed into performance venues. Uh, with the audience uh, uh, seated or standing around the balcony and in defined locations and a performance occurring on the floor. But, you know, it's, it's not just socially uh, distancing the audience. It's socially distancing the performers, too. Right. Wow. That is a that's a big major shift right there. That would be. I'm surprised nobody's thought about that yet. A, a mall circus or a mall trapeze act or something. Exactly. Wow. I would imagine that's something that you guys have already kind of getting an idea for. It sounds like those, uh, those kernels are already bouncing around in your head there. No, no, that it was actually somebody else's idea on the call, Okay. but, but I clicked on it because we're doing, we're designing these alternative entertainment spaces in the atriums of cruise ships with acrobats uh, uh, and, and moving video walls and that sort of thing. So mm -hmm. we're already working in an atrium type space, which would be easily uh, transitioned over to something like a mall. But, you know, there's a lot of different, it, what's the weight capacity of the ceiling? You know, you know it right. wasn't engineered for uh, uh, rigging and lights and, and, uh, and all that. You know, it, it, there'd be a lot of challenges there. One of the things that we are very fortunate to have is that we have such amazing technology now that people are doing shows where there are no artists. Uh, so you were talking about being seduced by technology. We could easily take that to the next level and do shows that are just technology that doesn't have the same levels of social distancing. Uh, when and, you're talking and, about and, giant uh, chandeliers and moving scenery and uh, virtual reality, these are all things that we can adapt to. Yeah, the, uh, the Intel show that we did at CES that, that had all of these, these micro winches uh, and, and LED video uh, floor, uh, there was one performer in a five-minute number. It was, a, it was a young lady, about probably 14 years old, phenomenal dancer. And it was her interacting with all of the technology. And, and we were showcasing uh, uh, proximity sensors uh, that Intel was developing. And as she danced across the LED video floor, uh, the video would, would follow after her, or there'd be tales uh, of the content as she was walking around, uh, as she was dancing around. And as she would come close to some, some of these globes on winches and, and she would wave at them, they would illuminate. And we weren't cueing this. This was just 
the Intel technology we're showcasing. So uh, it, was, it was a very entertaining five-minute number with just one performer. Now, and I'm not saying that we're going to get rid of performers because, I mean, how could you? You know, I mean, there's nothing like the magic of live performances. But that's an example, I think, of what you're referring to. Those, that's totally within our capabilities. Uh, so what you're saying right there, one person put on a spectacular show. I mean, obviously it took the, the hundreds of other people behind the scenes, but uh, it, when you were talking about having the, to have the performers socially distance, man, that, that sounds like a solution. I don't know if we could whip it together fast enough to do something like that, but it definitely sounds like an interim solution. Yeah, I, I have to say that I, I hope the crisis is over and there's a vaccine before we go too far down that road. I agree. I agree. It's, it doesn't make it, uh, it does make it fun to still think about it though, that, that yeah. that's all possible. I'm a hopeful optimistic, but I, I'm afraid that this is going to happen again. Uh, I, I don't doubt that another pandemic will hit uh, later in the, you know, in the next decade or so. So it, it's good for us to be thinking about it now. Uh, it's something that seems to keep you uh, wellfully well employed thinking forward and looking for new opportunities. It's a combination of looking for our opportunities and the terror of a business owner uh, that has seen so much work <laughs> evaporate. <laughs> yes, terror is a good motivator. Yeah. Uh, I, I will say that our cruise ship business is continuing on track. The, uh, the, the, every cruise ship is delayed uh, at this point because shipyards were shut down in Europe, but they're still continuing mm -hmm. uh, on track. They'll just be late deliveries. Um, we've got uh, a lot of work, a large contract for a new theme park in China, but China is not letting Americans in at this point. Uh, but uh, we're in discussions now with the theme park company about getting some special visas and chartered flights to get our people over there. Uh, so I'm, I'm optimistic about that. Yeah, but I, uh, it, it's very uh, upsetting the, the amount of live production that's uh, disappeared. Yeah, we, we share that uh, sentiment. Uh, Jim, I, I can hardly believe that an hour has passed away. This has been uh, just nonstop back and forth. Uh, you're, you're so great at fielding answers, uh, these questions and answers so quickly. I really appreciate you taking the time. It, it hardly felt like an hour at all. No, I know. It's, it, it's been a lot of fun. I've enjoyed it. Thank you so much. I really look forward to doing this in person. I would much rather do this in Idlewild uh, sitting on your back porch or in a theater somewhere on a cruise ship. But me here we too. are. <laughs> A complete agreement. Thanks for having me on the show.